0: Vimpair's New York City headquarters. I'm Adam Teeter.
1: And I'm Joanna Sherino.
0: And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. And this is the Vinepair Podcast. Zach, man, we missed you at BCB. And since we got oh, to drink fun I stuff, know. why don't you tell us what you drank first? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Bar Convent Brooklyn looked like a lot of fun. Um, yeah, man. maybe maybe next year. We have there's there's this like ever growing number of very cool uh like cocktail bar. Festivals that uh, I've never been to, so uh, <laughs> got to work on that. I suppose um, get out of my northwest corner of the of the US. I can't. I never even Tales of the Cocktail up in Vancouver, which is obviously very close to me, but uh, haven't made it up there. So yeah, no. Um, what have I been drinking? Um, I I think probably the most interesting thing that I had in the last week or so was. Um, well, I think two things. One, I had a, a really interesting white wine from a winery up in um, kind of pretty far Northern California in the North Yuba Mountains area uh, from a winery called Frenchtown Farms. And it was a it was a blend of Sauvignon Blanc and Roussan, which are not two varieties I've seen mm-hmm. blended together very often. Um, but it's very cool that the whole, you know, it's like one of these things where you just realize sometimes I actually had the opportunity to visit that area a few years ago. I uh, didn't didn't go to, to the this winery, but went to another winery there. And um it's one of those reminders where you're just like man, California is enormous and has so many different kind of agricultural and viticultural areas. And um, this is like you know not completely dis- different from other places I've been, but but you know it's just very remote. Like I lost cell phone service uh, out in the vineyard, and you know you're kind of just like you're in. I think you're technically in the uh, what do they call it? The state of Jefferson. They're a uh, pretend breakaway republic up there in the in the north part of uh, of California. Oh, right. And it's just like, yeah, so it's, 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 it was miles away from, uh, or you know, like a a world away from the glitz and glamour of, you know, kind of a little further down in uh, Napa and Sonoma. Um, But it's interesting wine. It was, it was definitely, uh, you know, showed uh, a lot of kind of it was you know it's a natural wine. It's definitely on the funkier side, but not overwhelmingly so. Um and maybe it's just because like we have an apple tree in our yard and like it's dropping apples like crazy and I'm just like constantly surrounded by the smell of like partially fermented apples, but it had a little bit of that sense to it, which I which I kind of dig in white wine from time to time. So yeah, it was good. Cool. Well, Do you guys have any standout things at B C B or anything else that's been uh, like a, a highlight? Well I'll let Joanna talk about B C B.
1: Um, I think I had more gin and tonics yesterday than oh. I've had in my entire life. For some reason, Oof. I feel like gin was a really big focus. Um, there was a lot of gin there. A yeah. lot of gin, right? Gin. Yeah, yeah. Um, but outside of outside of BCB, I uh, this past weekend we stopped by Torch and Crown Brewery, um, okay. in Manhattan and Soho, and uh, I know Adam, you had you had chatted with John Dansler right, last year yeah, when they opened up. Um, so we got some beers to go from there. Um, I really enjoyed a Saison that they had right now. And we got a sour that was just a little too sour for me. Mm. Getting that a lot. I don't know if it's just,
0: like not just really thing? acidic
1: for me. Um, anyway, maybe I'm just getting old.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I have noticed as I've gotten older that my tolerance for very sour things has decreased for sure. <laughs> oh,
2: my God. This now just sounds like an aging.
0: Uh, it's a podcast. Yeah, okay. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. This is that we're not we're not reaching a younger demographic. I love no, really sour is- things. Please, yeah, this podcast brought to you by AARP.
2: <laughs>
0: Soon enough, man. And tons. No. Oh, yeah. oh, yeah. Oh, I love got I <laughs> travel
2: with <laughs> them. There was a lot of gin and tonic though at BCB, and I also agree with you, Joanna, that uh, sour's. I mean, for me, it's always been sour beers, but it's been forever that I'll just be like, oh, can't do those. Like, mm-hmm. I can have one, and then I'm <laughs> like, I, I'm not enjoying these. Like, these – I don't want to fight with my beverage.
1: Yeah.
2: I thought BCB was, was, was a good time. There was definitely – it was definitely, like, less big brands that have been there in the past. Um, mm-hmm. so I think it was, it was missing some of, like, the larger brands. So actually, it was kind of nice. There was, like – there was, you know – more sort of mid tier and then emerging brands, which is cool. They kind of got like more of the spotlight, which I think is always great for those brands because, you know, more people obviously will then stop and see them and they still had a really great amount of talent in terms of the the bartender community that was out, you know, making drinks. Um and it was just I mean, you could tell everyone was just like really happy to be there and i think they did it you know as safely as they could right so Mm -hmm. multiple vaccine checks uh you know you had to check when you first checked in then again when we picked up our credentials then again as we were coming into the venue so it felt safe and everyone had their masks on for the most part besides when they were tasting and a lot of people spent a lot of time outside Mm -hmm. um so it was cool uh and then the other stuff what what else did i do this last this past weekend oh my parents were in town so yeah uh, so yeah so we had some 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 fun drinks. Um, you know, I got to have. I, I made some cocktails. Um, I made my parents the last word, which they would never had before, which was oh. fun to share with them. Um, and we went out for for dinner one night uh, to again a place I've probably talked about before. Talked about before, Lorena Pastificio, which was mm-hmm. just a great meal um, with really really cool wine. And my, again, I got to have my parents have coast for the first time. Oh, cool! Which was awesome. We nice. had their their orange wine, which was delicious. Oh, I've never had that. Oh, it was great. Hmm. It was really great. And yeah, you know, then just kind of hung out at home and had some, had some fun times with them. And then it was all BCB yesterday. Um, and I'm trying to think if there was like one or two booths that really stood out. The one thing I will say that I had that I'd never had before, and I'm saying, you know, hmm. maybe they, rum chata.
1: Uh, i've no, no.
2: never had rum chata before and it was actually pretty good <laughs> like, i'm not gonna lie i was a little suspect i was like oh what's this gonna be and then i tried it and they they, they shook it from for, for uh-huh. myself actually myself and aaron goldfarb both walked over and there had it together well, and, this is uh, like right up aaron's alley it's basically just you know eggnog no, it, well, yeah, and aaron loves an eggnog and aaron I also know. aaron also loves like a you know a spirit that none of us in New York are talking about, you know, cause yeah. it's, it's, and so we walked over and we were, we were talking to the team and uh they're like, yeah, hey, you want to try rum chata? And, you know, like, yeah. And it was pretty delicious. <laughs> you know, like, and then they brought out fresh nutmeg and like, yeah. and, uh, nice you know, apparently they said that like, it's a, one of the largest, rum chata is one of the largest, purchasers of cream in America or milk in Wisconsin. I don't know.
0: I didn't get the full facts. So no one quote me on this. <laughs> uh, well, <laughs> but, yeah, but, and and you might've had some rum chata before they told you the facts. So, you know, yeah. recollections may but, uh,
2: but, th- but that was cool. And then I, um, I'm trying to think if there's anything else that was just like really, I mean, there was, so, there was so much good stuff, but just like, stuff yeah, that yeah, was yeah. like wow. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I I spent some time with on my bingo card at the Sazerac table. Ah. (laughs) They, they had a pretty funny, fun ploy that turned out to be a ruse, which was, uh, apparently if you tried 10 different things, (laughs) you would get a taste of Pappy. And Mm -hmm. so Josh and I were like, yeah, we're going to do this. And you're like, little taste, right? Come on. Yeah. And, uh, and then we get to the end of their and and they're like, oh, there's no Pappy. (laughs) We, we messed up. We actually don't have Pappy today. (laughs) Oh, they should have been like, yeah, we, someone drank it all already. Yeah, like we had that yesterday. They're like, but, but you know, but we do have George T. Stag. And I was like, that's fine.
0: <laughs> but, I mean. I'm okay. I'll take it. Peeps. It was,
2: it was pretty, fun. it was actually yeah. pretty humorous, but I did get to try a lot of really interesting things in the portfolio, including uh, an Indian whiskey, which I'd never had before. Mm-hmm. Um, that, oh, that interesting. That to the U.S. Yeah. Was um, it, so it wasn't Amrut. It was another one. It was another one. Okay. Um, and now the name is. Escapes me, um, but they're bringing it, to, they're starting to bring it to the U.S. Um, I guess Sazerac has part ownership of it.
0: Oh, okay. Um, cool.
2: And yeah, it was, it was a really interesting uh, whiskey that like, I mean, they had one that was like super aged, I think. And they said it's sells for like, cause they're going to sell it in the U S for like $300 a bottle. Uh, it was interesting stuff, like really, really, really interesting stuff. So yeah, yeah totally. I mean, that was, that was what, what I've been up to. Um, but Zach, you've got today's topic for, for, uh, for us. What, what are we going to chat about?
0: Well, so you know, uh, this has kind of been prompted by um, by a couple of things. I think it's been prompted. Uh, this this topic has been prompted by uh, some pre- some press releases, <laughs> and you know that they're sometimes good fodder for for podcast topics for me mm-hmm. and uh, and for you guys too, of course. And uh, and also, um, you know, Adam, you, we were talking about this uh, before we recorded a little bit, like by by travels and kind of the the just what we see in the in the wine space in particular. And the the sort of thing I wanted to get both of your perspectives on is, is I recently got a, a press release about a new Napa Valley wine project. And it's you know, keeping in the sort of a lot of what you associate with what, what historically you might associate with Napa Valley. It's Cabernet Sauvignon focused. It's got three very high profile, um, long, well-established winemaking consultants attached to it, uh, you know, kind of eye-popping price tag, et cetera, et cetera. But what's interesting to me in this is it's the first thing I've seen in a while that really, it's, it's whole marketing pitch is like, we're not going to tell you, oh, it comes from this and that vineyard. We're not going to extol the quality of the grapes. What we're going to focus on is, we're paying these very well-known winemakers a lot of money, presumably, to put there to to make this wine, and we think that you, the audience for these wines, which granted is very small and very elite, um, are going to be more interested in that than in a in a recitation of the you know the specific values of the of the site where the or sites where the grapes came from. And granted, it's still Napa Valley wine. It's not like they're making it in the middle of, of you know North Yuba, California, say. Um, but what was interesting to me, and I wanted to get your take on is is, you know, we have been in this period of time in wine for the last decade or so, if not longer, where everyone from, you know, from producers in um, the most established regions to some of the most new or obscure, you know, have focused so much in their, con- in their communications to the public to the press to the trade about the you know the the nuances of their of their site of their terroir of the value of this specific plot of land where their grapes come from and and have really kind of diminished the importance of their winemaker in a lot of cases and in the wine making and i'm wondering like do we think do you guys think that there is an has that pendulum swung too far or are we at the point now where that conversation is so tipped towards the discussion about you know the place, the vineyard, the, the place where the grapes come from. And so little is said about the winemaking and the winemaker uh, that, cause that's a little bit how I felt And this, in this, not that this, these wines particularly are, I'm not, you know, ponying up $8,000 for these wines or whatever, but, um, I, there was something about that, 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 that resonated with me. And, and I thought, huh, it's interesting. Maybe there is an audience for, for a sort of, I don't know about anti-terroir, but sort of a non-terroir focused wine i th- I do think um that there is
2: definitely a a move towards more about you know everything starts in the vineyard and less about who makes it and I definitely think there is somewhat of a tension there amongst I mean now we're gonna get really into it right and like gonna piss some people off so let's go so I <laughs> think that there is a tension here that exists amongst trained winemakers so people Mm -hmm. who either have gone and gotten a degree right so they've they've you know they've really worked their their asses off and they've you know they've gone in and gotten the master's and you know some have gotten phds and really like have learned a lot in terms of uh, winemaking at uc davis or you know one of the other you know great analogy schools uh, or they have apprenticed for a really long time under other winemakers to really learn and i think they you can always sense a little bit of like uh annoyance in their voices when when they talk about this topic because it's like we give a we give a fuck about the site too, motherfuckers, yeah, <laughs> we care about it too, but like we also believe that then our skill is the best steward of that site, yeah, but I think that the site has become you know so much more talked about than it used to, and that has then fed the movement of like okay, so then you know. John, Jim, who, you know, Jane, who can go and just buy that fruit, crush it, and it's going to be just as good as if mm-hmm. someone who actually trained had made it. And I don't think that's true. I think that's pretty much crap. Um, and we've seen that reflected in, in a lot of wines that get made by sort of novices. Like, I mean, I, I can like, can bake bread right like i learned how to do it in the pandemic but like it's nowhere as good as bread that's been baked by a you know world-renowned baker who even if i use the same ingredients right and so i but but i think that a lot of what you were seeing is that discussion of sight because we are seeing so many i mean i I don't mean to use i know you know just come at me amateurs who are Mm -hmm. making wine and then selling it at the same price as people who have Really perfected their craft, yeah. and that's a little bullshit.
1: And you think that they're like using the 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 land, the ter- terroir, to sell it? The, these amateurs,
2: yeah, they they use that story, right? So it's mm-hmm. like, well, the fruit comes from this amazing site. So it's like, look, like I can go to the farmers' market and buy the same caliber, you know, fruit, vegetables, etc. On Saturday in Fort Greene, the chefs in Brooklyn go and buy. I just don't go as early in the morning because, come on, I'm sleeping in. But then when I do go, so maybe I don't get the best, best stuff, but I can get that caliber of produce, right? When I go home, I like to think of myself as a pretty decent home chef. I like to cook. I like to play around. But, like, I would never charge you $30 a plate for it, mm-hmm. right? Sure. I- I'll charge you, like, you know, you have to deal with my company. But besides that – Maybe you got to help clean up. <laughs> yeah. But besides that, like, I'm not, you know, I'm not charging and I do think that that's what's been so crazy in wine is that there's, there's a lot of people who have gotten into it who, you know, are able to have access. Look, like at the end of the day, the person selling the fruit just wants to sell the fruit, right? And so you can get access to some of these. I mean, except for the, the really, really, really renowned vineyards, we would say like the, the premier crew vineyards, ground crew vineyards of the U.S. There's some great sites that you can be a quote unquote hobbyist and you can get access and you can have a graphic designer friend who can make you a label and you can go buy bottles and you can then be on the market at the same price. And there's some distributors who I would argue, uh, you know, have made a career in representing hobbyists, right? Because there's a lot of like sort of thirst for hobbyists. I mean, look, you guys all, those who listen to podcasts a lot, know that I'm using hobbies as a code word for a, a you know, a, a, a wine movie that starts with the word N and ends with natural But I'm I'm just saying that like
1: craft winemakers,
2: ex- craft winemakers, exactly. Uh-huh. And and so I think that you can't tell the story of the winemaker as much because besides the fact that like I get it, you love wine, we all love wine, you're passionate about it, you know it. You you can't tell the same story that a a winemaker with decades of experience or even even a winemaker straight out of school but who has gone through the ropes of learning how to make wine Mm -hmm. and and done the work can and so that has shifted there that's my my thought process i think i've talked a lot so joanna what do you think
1: well i have a question like so zach you said that you got this um press release about this and i don't know kind of i'm wondering if we know of other instances of this happening or if this is kind of like a Feels kind of gimmicky to me, mm. a little bit. Like you're using these names, and and now after hearing Adam chat, I'm I'm wondering if it, if we're swinging towards like it seems like both. You need both things, right, yes. for really good wine. Oh, for sure. The grapes, the fruit, and then the winemaker, as yeah. well. Like you can't really unless unless we think we can make the case for like a winemaker turning shit grapes into really good wine. No,
0: I, I don't think you would necessarily say that, but I think that that in, including these specific winemakers who were named in this in this project, you know, they they their reputation was built in the in the eighties and and nineties and two thousands because they were you know this sort of cadre of what they called like flying winemakers, right? Like they would they had projects all over the world, they would make the wine or at least consult on the winemaking and. And kind of the thing you were frankly paying them for if you were a, a proprietor was a just sort of the reputation and the imprimatur mm-hmm. that they lent to your project their maybe their their specific know-how and their technique um and and frankly like the yeah just the 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 cachet that it gave you and so that isn't gone i mean we see you know people from you know we certainly have seen plenty of examples of of winemakers now who you know, launch multiple projects who, who move from, from wine to wine, you know, uh, I think it's just that we, we, you know, there was like, like take someone like Dave Finney, right? Dave Finney, who who founded the prisoner. Mm -hmm. There's someone who, Mm -hmm. you know, when, when the prisoner was, was founded, you know, he was lauded as like sort of this, you know, he, he was a person who, you know, understood Maybe the winemaking side of it to some extent, but the marketing side of it—the idea of creation of a brand—you know—he created this 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 iconic brand out of nothing, sold it obviously, and went on to do other things. And like somewhere along the way, that became uh, you know in sort of elite wine circles, in most of them that that whole th- that that wine and that concept became taboo, right? It was anathema. It was, this is the opposite of what you should do, right? That that, that the great the greatest winemakers are people who. You know, maybe you never even know their names. You know, they were people who, you know, they, they, you know, the the vision of a great winemaker was someone who, you know, I guess ideally kind of like had their own little patch of land and they planted weird, obscure varieties. And they, they made these wines that were, you know, just had no commercial purpose to them. And they were like, you know, they were, they were this sort of
1: very romantic.
0: Yeah. This sort of tortured genius kind of notion. And and, I mean, I've had some of those wines and some of them are great. Some of them suck. And some of them, a lot of them are in between. And I guess I think that just the the thing that I that I was that was refreshing to me about this notion and and I have been trying to push back against a little bit when I talk to people is this idea that like wine is not a natural product in the sense that it does not occur naturally. Right. Mm -hmm. Like all wine is unnatural in the sense that like you can't just go into nature and gather wine. Right. You (laughs) can pick grapes. You can pick grapes. And if you pick grapes and, and press them, you will have fermentation, and then you'll have vinegar or or something that's rancid. Like like wine is an arrested part of the like the breakdown of grapes, and we love it. It's great, but no, it's not natural. Any meaningful, I mean, in a in a true sense of that word, none of it. Right. Some of it is maybe more more unnatural than others. So to me, the the thing that I and and that and that to deny what people do in the process of making wine, everything from Growing grapes, right? Choosing to plant, uh, you know, graft, you know, uh, uh, vinifera uh, vines onto non-vinifera rootstock to plant it in a place, to grow it, to cultivate it, to tr- to train it and trellis it, to pick it, to make wine from it. All those things are human actions. And so mm-hmm. I what I found, kind of, I agree there's a, a, you know, sort of gimmickry in this specific Wine, I I, or you know, brand. I I don't deny that. But what I found refreshing was a sort of of a a recognition that wine is a human product, right? We make it. It's not. It is not in the same way that. And and to your point, Adam, and I agree with you. In the same way that bread is a human product, bread doesn't. You know, bread doesn't (laughs) grow on trees. Um, And 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 in fact, like wine, the starting. I mean, even more so with bread, the starting raw material, wheat, is takes a lot to get to the point where it's a delicious. You know. Sourdough loaf or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. And so, and so we, and we don't, we would never think to say that a baker is not the most important person and and agent in bread. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, yes, the person growing the wheat matters, and maybe the quality of the wheat matters. I wish I had more opportunities in life to have artisanal wheat. Made into bread by skilled bakers, I would be delightful. We, bread doesn't doesn't you know ship and store the way wine does, so I don't get as many chances to do that. But but we would never deny the the skill and the agency and the and the absolute necessity of a talented baker in giving you the highest expression of that wheat. And and yet we, a lot of people in wine have really kind of sought to to. Diminish the role of the winemaker, including winemakers themselves in some cases, which I really don't understand. But but a lot of people outside of that have really sought to strip out the, the role of the winemaker. Well, okay, I think I think I answer a quick question before I want to take this
2: conversation to a crazy place. Oh, let's so, go. So the, the question I think is in in terms of like uh you know the winemakers who diminish. I think a lot of winemakers. At the end of the day, are just like brewers, they're just like distillers. They just want to sell their fucking product, man. And if yes. they think that right now, what you know the, the the buyers want to hear is that it's all about the vineyard, they're gonna fucking sit there and say it's all well, for about sure. the vineyard. You know what I mean? Like, whatever, whatever you want to hear, you know, so and so who run who's beverage director at this place, like I will tell you, like, just buy my freaking wine so I can survive, right? But I do want to ask a larger question, which is do you think that this movement comes because of the fact that we as a society have kind of become anti-education. Oh. Meaning that like education has become expensive, right? It's mm. it's astronomical. A lot of us have massive student debt. We, you know, we sort of we then come out of college and like a lot of us don't make salaries. We can, you know, we we they can help us pay off that debt pretty quickly, right? So like, we think we should be paid a lot more than we are paid. Um, you know, there's we we have our generation so millennials and then Gen Z making less than our parents made at our ages, right? Mm-hmm. Which is crazy. Um, you know, across the country, there's like this sort of movement about either if education's not going to be free, then kind of fuck it, right? You have then like the whole sort of VC world saying who does who even needs to go get an education like just start your business right so we have this whole movement that's sort of anti-expertise almost right or anti-education to gain that expertise Mm. and like is that also kind of fueling everything I don't know it it just seems like you know we have to sort of think about where else we are getting messages in society because I, I feel like I hear this happening even you know when I when I hear people talk about certain fashion designers who are like sort of like quote unquote self-made and like no one wants to think about whether or not those people maybe had apprenticeships or artists who sort of you know didn't get degrees didn't get mfas etc i don't know it just it's it's interesting like it's, as as a thought experiment to think about whether this is a larger idea of like you know us as a society just kind of like turning against education joanna i'm gonna you take this <laughs> Yeah, yeah I'm respond to that, Joanna.
1: Process what you just said. I just like, <laughs> I, like I like, it. I like
2: setting the bomb, yeah. letting it go off, and then being like, yeah. y'all, y'all discuss.
1: Yeah, I don't know. So you're saying that, like, we, we now value, like, we don't value the craftsmanship?
2: No, I'm saying that, like, I think a lot of what's, uh, you know, to become a, a lauded winemaker, a lot of those lauded winemakers have these degrees, right? So have uh, we sort I of don't. turned away from the idea of the winemaker towards the site in a lar- in large part because as a society, we're kind of... Tr- there are people in society who are sort of devaluing education because yeah. education has become so expensive. So for example, if we were to say... Um, you know, if we were to say that, like, the winemaker is really important, and it's really important to be a successful winemaker to get a degree, right. there is a lot of people in our society that could not afford to do that, mm-hmm. yeah, right? because education is ins- insanely expensive. Right. And yeah. so, if that is also the case, then is somewhat the discussion of the site as its own thing a reaction to the fact that, like, well, it's not just about like thinking about the romanticism of everything; it's also that, well, if I want to do this thing and I can't afford to, to gain the knowledge to do this thing you know, or or to be poor as an apprentice to mm-hmm. do this thing. So I'm just going to go do this thing and sort of tell a different story because I may not have the skill set right now, but I sure, I sure as hell don't have the money to get that skill set. So I'm just going to continue to fail as I learn.
1: Yeah, I guess – I think that's a very valid point to make. I guess I just don't – I guess then then as a result, we're turning towards highlighting terror. Or is that not even a pot- part of this argument?
2: I think that's why you turned to highlight terroir,
0: because
1: right. you
2: can't sort of lean on your own expertise because you don't really have it yet. Gotcha.
0: Yeah. Well, I think there's probably two things happening here. One is 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 definitely there is something to the idea that we are maybe it's not just education, I think expertise in general is being diminished in its in its sort of value societally. And some of that is is good because sometimes I think expertise a, as Adam said, is not uh, equally available to all people. And some people, right. the barrier to, to gaining that expertise is very, very high for some people more than for others. Mm-hmm. And there are, there are real broader societal issues with that. I also think there's, there's another piece of this, which is that be, just learning how to do something in school does not mean that you will inherently be good, good at it or great at it in, on your own. That, like, winemaking is both science and art. Um, and I think anyone who's good at it will tell you that whatever their background is, and that. But but it is true that I think we have seen a rejection of the science part of it, of the technical side of it, in a lot of um, camps, not just the natural wine camp, frankly, um, or the diminishment of its importance. And I think that at the same time, what what has also been going on is um, a lot of people recognizing maybe that there is an opportunity with. Clever branding with a compelling story, personal story that might not be about your, you know, winemaking credentials. Say, but or even maybe the source of your fruit, but it's something else that you can kind of just skip over the learning to do it part, or you can you know kind of learn to do it while doing it. And you know, frankly, the reality is because our understanding of winemaking is and the science of it is much more complete than it used to be, you can read a book and probably not make something poisonous. You know, you can make something that's drinkable and, and, you know, maybe you can make something that's even enjoyable to some people and, and consumable. And like, I guess what I would say is that I think that you're right, Adam, that there is a part of this, that just like a, a sort of a, a broader, this broader societal trend. But I also think there's something specific to wine, which is, which is a very specific backlash against, the idea of like kind of all great wine being made by a few people, which is kind of what it felt like for a while in, you know, kind of in our, you know, for all of us, kind of the early, if you're paying attention when when we were kind of early on in our drinking age life. And now it's like, there's been this kind of, you know, democratization, I suppose you would call it of, of winemaking, but it does mean that there is sort of this, like, it, it has come at the, you know, the denial of the importance, I think it the denial of the importance of of wine of the winemaker and of the skill of wine making in a way that is unfortunate for for everyone, I think, because because yes, you're right, Adam, that people want to be able to sell their product and maybe they don't care what the angle is. But but in the end, I think it it gives consumers an incorrect impression of what wine is, of how wine comes to be, how it makes it from the vineyard to your home or to the restaurant or whatever and like it is such a human endeavor and that is part of its beauty it is a it is a synthesis of of human technological prowess and of natural beauty and that is i think wonderful and i would not want to deny either piece of that in talking about wine yeah i think that's a good point it's it's very interesting like all of it you guys didn't really answer my question so
1: Um,
0: well i mean excuse uh... me for not having a sociology report ready for you Jeez, (laughs) do your own homework adam Ah,
2: fine, Zach. No, I think you're right. I mean, I think that there, it's, it's unfortunate. And I I agree that, you know, um, you with your analysis of like, it's a little gimmicky, like the way that this one wine is marketing itself, Mm -hmm. but it is, it is interesting to see that there are people who sort of are starting to say, Hey, you know, we'd like to be back in the spotlight a little bit. Like we'd like to talk about us as well. And I think it's both right. It's, it's site and person. Like it's, it's not just the site. It's like, what does that person do with the site and how do they understand the site? And I think, and then, and then how do they want that site to be expressed? And, you know, there, there may be really skilled winemakers who want that site to be expressed through the, you know, sort of more, I don't know what we would say is traditional vein of winemaking where, you know, it's much more about the, the purity of the fruit, et cetera. There might be other people who say like, look, I like a little bit of Brett that enters the wine or, you know, I, I kind of feel like that gives my wines character, but that, you know, also wants to be known as the person behind that wine. Mm-hmm. Right. And wants to talk about like their, you know, their perspective on why they did what they did in the same yeah. way that like you want to hear from an artist in terms of like, okay, so like, wh- why did you do what you did on the canvas? Not just like, it is what it is, you know, and the, and it was all the paint.
1: Yeah. I also just think, I don't know with, with how people respond to chefs and things like that. Like I wouldn't be surprised if consumers become increasingly curious about the people who are making their wine.
2: Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I think that's very true. Um, well, Zach, Joanna, this was really interesting. Yeah. Let us know what you guys think. Yeah. yeah. What's the, what's, what's the email? <gasps> Zach. It's podcast. dot com. <laughs> yeah, man. Hit us up. Let us know. We, we want to hear what you think. And, uh, if anyone can answer my question, <laughs> hit, hit me up.
0: Yeah.
2: Hit me up. All right. I'll talk to you about next week.
1: Okay. Take care.
2: Sounds great. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast. If you love this show as much as we love making it, then please leave us a rating or review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever it is you get your podcasts. It really helps everyone else discover the show. Now for the credits. Vinepair Pair is produced and recorded in New York City and Seattle, Washington, by myself and Zach Jabal, who does all the editing and loves to get the credit. Also, I would love to give a special shout out to my Vine Pair co-founder, Josh Mallon, for helping me make all this possible. And also to Keith Beavers, Vine Pair Stations Director, who is additionally a producer on this show. I also want to, of course, thank every other member of the Vine Pair team who are instrumental in all of the ideas that go into making this show every week. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you again.